John 13, 6 through 12. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. God's word of God. You take it with you. you. Otherwise, I'll knock it off. Good morning. All right. Hmm. Was that okay what I prayed? That we would actually feel the weight of our debt? Because I think if we feel the weight, we'll need to make a confession. And when we make a confession, the weight will be lifted and it will feel something. Can we just agree to try that today at some point in time? Because the, the debt today, the weight, is something I know I struggle with. I, I, I believe it's something we all struggle with. What I see in the upper room in that story is something that we all are wrestling with. So I hope at some point in time today that we would offer it, that we would say, God, I confess. I'll tell you in a minute. And I think he'll lift it. And I wonder if he lifts us up as we worship together to be sent out. So what we're doing in Lent, I want to remind you before we get into the passage itself, is we're trying to intentionally uncover what keeps us from life with Jesus. We're trying to intentionally uncover. That means we're looking. So I was using Psalm 139 last week. I'll probably try to use it each week. If you want to, you can turn there with me right now as I'm going to read it again. It's on page, I don't have a page number, but I'm going to find it for you. It's on page 618. This is my prayer this morning personally. Uh, this will be my prayer for us every Sunday. And it's this, David begins the psalm saying this, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. I said this last week, you know me. You're God. We pray it here a lot. We're glad that he is God because I would make a really crummy God. I'm not sure about you. It says you're God and you know every single thing. You know everything. God, you are big. You are really big. And then he works his way through life from before he was born. He talks about when I'm up high, when I'm down low, no matter where I go, you always see me. You are God. You know everything. So he concludes in verse 23. So that God, you God, that big God, search me. You already know, but I want to know what you know. I want to see what you see in me. Search me. Know my heart. We say it a lot here. The heart's the place in which we choose to live. We make choices and decisions. It's the core of who we are. Search the core of me, he says. Look, look in me. I know you already see it, but I want you to tell me what you see. Would you see if there's any offensive way, anything that is destructive and painful, anything that is broken, anything that I don't have eyes for yet, would you show me that thing? Show me my sin. Show me my brokenness. I want to see it. So you can lead me in the way everlasting. Lift that thing from me. Help me to know what it is so I can get down on my knees 
and say, take this from me so he can pick me back up. That's what we're trying to do every single week. We are intentionally uncovering the things in us that destroy us, which is a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? So that's our goal. So I've been asking this question. I'm going to keep asking the question. Actually, some people asked me during the week. So this is kind of weird, Clayton. So we're talking about being a people of blessing, but we're also talking about being a people who are confessing. So blessing, confessing, confessing, blessing. How do those things work together? Well, what keeps us from seeing and knowing and loving God? That's what we're trying to figure out. What keeps us from seeing those things? What keeps us from being seen then by seeing, known, and loved by God? We're trying to find those things so that we then can be people who can see, know, and love others. But if I have not been seen, if I have not been known, if I have not been loved, I cannot see, know, and love. So that's why those two things go together. They work beautifully together. But if we can't unearth these things that would keep us from noticing the people in our life and what's actually going on with them, we're not going to be able to say a word to them. And we want to be people who speak blessings. I'm going to keep saying it. I love doing nice things. I love it. And I think there are moments where a blessing can be imparted without words. I heard a story last week of someone who stood and hands were laid and they could sense there was something happening, something from the Lord. He was blessing them. But I really, in an age where we are in a, we were in an age, smart people say, of anxiety, and now we're becoming really angry, I think if we're going to be really different, we have to say words that are not angry. For people who are fearful and afraid, we have to be able to say something that is different. So I'm going to keep challenging you and me because this is a challenge for me. We need to speak words to help people feel seen, known, and loved. Confession leads to blessing. Confessing leads to blessing. So hopefully this quote is helpful. I found it for Lent. I'm not sure if it will be, but it said Lent. So this season that we're in, the season of preparation, is a double journey. It's a journey together and alone toward the mystery of God's redemptive embrace in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the same time, it's a journey into the depths of our humanity. So we have to know who we are. So I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not. Can you actually give me the last slide, slide 12? I've been trying to do this. Not perfectly. Trust me. But kind of a daily examine. Every day. What must I confess from the day? What do I need to bring to you? Did I bless? Because I must confess to bless. So you could start your day with this. You could end your day with this. And here's why. Hopefully this is helpful. Someone gave me this analogy and I liked it. Does anyone like to go on trips anywhere? Get me travelers, especially this time of year, right? Maybe a warm place. When you go on a trip, what do you pack? How do you pack? Usually most of us pack clothes for the place that we're going and they're clean and they're folded. We get to fit everything in our suitcase to try to keep it under the weight amount. So we're very strategic in what we're going to pack and bring with us, right? When you come home, what do you do? Or better question, what do you not do? You don't leave dirty, stinky clothes in your suitcase because if you're going to go somewhere next, would you put brand new clothes on old, dirty, stinky clothes? I mean, my wife can attest. I, some of you might know, I can get a little stinky. Especially on a Sunday morning, I sweat. I would not put new clothes on top of dirty clothes to go somewhere new. Because also, if I'm going to a new place, I would want new things in my suitcase. 
To me, that's what this examine is. At the end of a day, we come home, we, we set out for our day and we are ready for our day, right? Hopefully you spent time with the Lord and you have packed your suitcase, you packed your bag, you folded everything, everything is great. When you come home though, you need to go through your bag. You might need new things tomorrow. You might be going to a new place. You might be going somewhere that's colder and you might need different clothes, but you have to assess what you brought home. So I'm hoping that in this series that we might do this, kind of a daily, simple examine. What must I confess today, Lord? As you lay on bed in your bed at night, just before you go to bed, or maybe in your chair, wherever it is you sit, would you bring to mind Psalm 139, search me, know me. Where did I miss it today? Where did I miss you today? Where did I miss my neighbor today? Where did I miss my roommate today? Where did I miss my teammate today? My wife today, my kids today. Where did I miss you and them? Okay. Would you help me tomorrow to see them and to know them and to love them? So that's how those two things go together. I hope that helps us. So my plan for each week is we're going to explore the text. So today we're in the upper room, which Dustin just read, and we're looking at the things that are keeping the disciples from Jesus. I think the things that, that we struggle with, and these are kind of the bigger things that are underneath the, uh, the expressions of those big things. So a lot of times we confess individual sins, but there's usually something underneath that individual sin that we actually need to bring before the Lord. Otherwise, we're not actually going to change those individual sins, those things that are keeping us from him and from others. So we have to find out what those things are. And that's what we're trying to do in the upper room. So we're going to explore the text each week. My sentence for today, can you give me slide number six? Is trust now, understand later. And that is challenging. Because I asked the question to myself, I ask it to you, what keeps me from trusting God? What keeps you from trusting? And I see it in the room, I see it in me. It's pride. I am a proud person. I've been wrecked with my pride this week. I've had to confess my pride this week. And the problem is, I think we actually like pride. We approve of that sin a lot. And I'm not saying don't work hard or don't do your best. That's in here. Work as if you work for the Lord. All those things. I'm talking about something different. This pride, can you give me slide number five? This is what happens when we're proud. We withhold something from God in pursuit of our own kingdom or queendom, where we are the king or we are the queen, and everything revolves around me. This gets back to the initial issue in the Bible, right? What, what did evil say to the people? Redefine what's good. What works for you? Shouldn't you be in charge? It's a root sin, pride. And a book I'll reference today said this by a man named Andrew Murray. It's, the book's called Humility, the Opposite of Pride. And he said he believes that to be the great war of the cosmos. The pride of life, the pride of evil, and the humility of Jesus. And just a simple, how I like to think of humility. In, uh, see, in Philippians, Paul is talking about when Jesus came to, to, to live, he became a human, he lived, he died, he rose. At the very beginning, he says, it's okay for you to do the things you like to do, but not to the detriment of other people. It's okay to do the things you like, that you are passionate about, not at the detriment of who God is. So a humble person can recognize when it's shifting. 
when, what I, when my work or my sport or my passion or my hobby or this person, when that becomes something that actually becomes more important and begins to harm everyone around me, including my relationship with God, that's when things have flipped from humility to pride. But the problem is that I like to be proud. I like to be in control. You know, just, no. uh, I'm learning uh, math is different today than when I was in school. And I was learned about a math sentence the other day. That was a new, a new thing for me. But a math sentence, I actually like how kids are learning math. It makes sense to me. Like they're learning things. It's fun. But my daughter told me about a math sentence. And so I assessed my life, my pride, what I've been doing this last week, and I put it in the math sentence equation. My control, my outcomes, what's happening to me, this went on, and I put the equal sign, and I put hurt my wife, hurt my kids, miss people in life. That's what I saw in my life this week. But it's really easy to not see pride, which is what I see in the upper room. So John 13. There are many things you can say about this passage. Actually, there's someone in the last service who could probably talk about this passage for 10 years, and we wouldn't even touch it. But what I'm interested in today, I think about confession, what keeps me from life with Jesus, what keeps me from loving God and loving others. What I see in the upper room, actually, you first see it in Luke's gospel, but it's, it's a familiar thing. You see, around this washing of the feet, which we all know, is an argument. It's an argument that has been had many times over. Who's the greatest? The disciples are saying, who's more important? When people want to learn about this Jesus, who will they come talk to? Who gets to sit with him? Who gets to, and we'll talk about it in a minute, who sits by him at the table? Who's the greatest? And what I found so fascinating, and I'm not sure why exactly, I don't have a reason, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell stories about this argument. And John does not. And what's so interesting to me is that John is usually the culprit of this argument. So I'm not sure why John left it out. I'm not going to put words in, in his mouth. But there's these scenes. And let's see. Let's see. Mark chapter 10. John and James, his brother. Jesus. Make us the greatest. Can, can we sit on your right and your left? Later, in Matthew's gospel, they asked their mom to go ask Jesus. It's kind of messed up. Who's the greatest? But see, like all good arguments, there's no conclusion. I don't know if my brother's here or not right now, but uh, he and I have an argument. And I just want to share one with you to show that, well, we oftentimes don't agree. He and I have argued for, I would say, eight years now. 95 bulls or 15, 2015 warriors. Which team is better? I'm going with Jordan, Pippen, Rodman. Let's see, who's the second one? Coach and the three-headed monster of Purdue, Wennington, and Longley. And he says, no, 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 no. It's Curry, it's Durant, Iguodala, uh, see, Draymond Green, and somebody else. We argue, and we argue, and we argue, and we argue. My wife is listening, we argue. Same things over and over again. 
90s are way tougher. No, they way more threes than 2000s. They couldn't keep up with them. Well, they would go argue and argue. There, there's no resolution. I don't think I'll ever change his mind. <laughs> He's not changing mind. Jesus has been listening to that argument for three years. Jesus has said things like, I don't know, let's look at Matthew real quick. Like verse, chapter 11, verses 28. He says something like, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is self-descriptor, gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. A wise person once said to me that, you know who's the most powerful person in the room? The most humble. I said, why? Because they don't need everybody else. They know who they are. They're not, not touting the things they know, the things that they've done, try to gain approval from people. No, they don't have to do that. They're good with who they are. They're asking questions about everyone else instead of talking about themselves. Jesus has been talking about this. At a different place, who's the greatest? And Jesus pulls the kid out. See this kid? What do kids do so well that adults don't do? Trust. We trust. Kids will trust their parents. They will trust adults. I see teachers in the room who, my kids, love you and trust you. And they say the things that you say to me. I have to say, I'm so grateful for teachers. Side topic. Thank you for your investment in our young people. It is incredible. But kids trust. And these adults are arguing and arguing and arguing. And what's so interesting is, I feel like we, we, we gang up on the disciples. But someone said this about them. I, would, I never want to forget it. The disciples had a fervent, that's a strong, attachment to Jesus. These disciples had forsaken everything for him. The Father had revealed to them who he was, the Christ of God. They believed in him. They loved him. They obeyed him. They had forsaken all to follow him. When others went back, when he gave a hard teaching, they clung to him. They were ready to die for him, not the way that he thought or they thought. But deeper down than all of this, there was a dark power of the existence and the hideousness of which they were hardly conscious of, which had to be slain and had to be cast out or they could not be the witnesses the power that Jesus had to save. He's even so still. What, what was it? Pride. Who's the greatest? Who's most important? And they couldn't even see it. And they had done all those things for him. And they still missed it. So I get wrecked by pride all the time. So I'm a confessing proud person who desires to be humble, like my king. And I hope, it's a, it's a daily thing. And I hope that we all have that same prayer as we move through this series, because I think everything that comes after this all comes from that initial thought, pride. So let's get into the text for you for just a minute. Yeah, back to chapter 13 in John. i find my notes here. So I just want to paint the picture really quickly here. This is some things I hadn't thought about. I read a uh, commentary by a man named Craig Keener, and he's smart, and he opened my eyes to some new things. So he said, if you imagine, imagine the table. So the table was more of a horseshoe, probably. 
So small spot here, a longer table here, and then over here. And the most important position at the table was over here. It was actually the middle on this side. So that's where Jesus would have sat. If you read the text, the person next to Jesus, his name was John, because John is leaning against Jesus. And you would think that would be the most coveted position on the table, the position of authority. Everyone would want to work to get there. Who's the next person after Jesus? His name is Judas. And it's fascinating is some people would say that actually they would think that that's the most important position. And the reason is he was sitting in Jesus' most vulnerable spot. He was sitting at his back. Isn't that interesting that Jesus placed the one who betrayed him in his most vulnerable position? It's almost like Jesus saying, I know what's coming, and I actually welcome it because I know what has to happen. But you have to imagine this. So the argument's happening. Again, same argument. Come on. Does Jesus try to talk them out of it? Does he get mad at them? This is dumb, guys. Peter, just leave. Like, just he rearranging the table? Would you quit talking about this? None of you are important. I'm more important. Does he do that? No, he doesn't do that. What does he do? Takes off his outer garments and chooses to wash people's feet. And then what I hadn't caught was how long did that take? So probably John's here. Peter talks to John. So it means Peter's got to be over here somewhere on this side of the table. How long does it take to wash feet? I mean, when we wash our feet, our feet are pretty clean, right? Is Jesus like really washing their feet? Is he kind of washing their feet? I don't know. But you have to imagine, no rabbi would do this. There's actually are uh, stories of a, the head of the rabbinic school in the third century that said he, would, he was a really kind, generous man, and he would do anything for anyone except for give up his position. He would serve people. He would give to people, but he would not yield his position. He would not make himself less than the people around him. So Jesus does that. That's different. And how long does it take to get around the table? And no one says a word. Can you imagine the silence? As you're watching somebody that you think is going to take back everything, do the thing that I guess a slave would do? And Peter finally says, no! Speaks for everybody. No! No! Same person, same commentary, said that oftentimes washing You'd wash before things to show that you are ready. Washing is a sign of preparation. What is Jesus perhaps saying? You're, I'm trying to get you ready for what it actually means to be great in my kingdom. I'm trying to get you ready because this way requires death. It requires suffering. It's require things of you that you're not ready to do quite. He's trying to help them understand it's coming. I'm trying to get you ready. 
and they are not ready. Because if you look at not only John 13, but John 12, there's another foot washing in John 12. Did you know that? It's with, it's with uh, a, a perfume, though, and a lady named Mary does it. But here, so you're not ready. So listen, so John, Peter, Peter says, no! What does Peter do next? He denies Jesus. Mary pours perfume on Jesus' feet. What does Jesus say? No! It's a waste of money. What is he going to do? Betray Jesus. She's saying, guys, you're going to get it. Oh, I know you're going to get it. I'm trying to help you right now. There's something deep in your heart that you need to confess to actually see the way that you're supposed to live. I was like, what? Jesus at the end said, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So what does that look like? i thinking, what does this look like in life for us? I read a book recently that just breaks our sins, our brokenness, our, our shortcomings into some categories. Because I can read this to you and our life is different than their life, although we're wrestling the same thing. So what does that mean for us? So I want to break it down just really easily. Hopefully, that, hopefully it's something that we can grab as we try to go out. As we, what, how do we confess and what do we do? So I want to think about pride from when it's done by me to pride when it's done to me. And then just recognize we live in a world that is full of pride. And conclude with a story and two killer songs. All right? So what if it's done to us? You know, part of my uh, preparation, I was reading a book that talks about the confessions that priests hear. And it has been so fun to read. You know, it says last service, uh, every institutional religion has got bad stuff. But there's also some good stuff. And confession is one of the things I think, because of some things, we've said maybe we don't want that thing, when really is a beautiful thing. So I've been reading these confessions that priests hear and how they try to address when someone does confess to them. So this is when it's done by us. And I have a simple question. So I read this. The person said, I remember an elderly priest. His name was Father John. at the Russian convert in London. He, the priest, didn't like preaching sermons. And he didn't like hearing confessions. Not sure if he was a great priest. He was always extremely laconic. That means a man of few words. I didn't know that word. Few words of advice were ever given. One day a woman who often came to him for confession told him, as usual, and at great length, the arguments that she had with her husband. He said this, I said this, then he said this, I told him he was wrong, then he said this, and I said this. And then the priest looked to her and simply said, and did it help? Those four words changed her life. She suddenly saw how futile, futile it was going on arguing all the time, always trying to answer people back, always wanting to have the last word. What's the, what's the phrase you use a lot? Do you want to be right or do you want to be righteous? Do you want to be right or do you want to maintain a relationship so you can move to a place of being right together? She suddenly thought it doesn't have to be like that. 
So she stopped and she changed. Just thinking about her, me. I can argue, I can disagree. Did it help? There's a lot of argument and a lot of disagreement right now. Uh, think about your own life. When the volume goes up and someone beats you in an argument about whether the warriors or the bulls are best, does it ever change your mind? It doesn't change my mind. Is there a different way that would require humility? That's when we do it. What about when it's done to us? And I found this really interesting. The priest said this. One of the jobs of the priest is to identify shame that has nothing to do with sin, but is socially induced. So I've heard people say there's, there's, there's good shame and there's bad shame. So think about good shame is like is conviction. I did something that was wrong. I want to know I did the wrong thing. Bad shame is condemnation, which says that you just are bad. And the priest is saying they had to identify when there was shame that had nothing to do with sin, but was induced by what people around said. They said often the dark secrets people are most anxious to hide are not sins at all. There could be a number of things others might despise, sometimes having nothing to do with, or having to do with issues like class and race, culture, unemployment, family background, visible disability, illness, appearance. Children and adults get ridiculed for such things, ostracized. So while a person may be rightly ashamed of something they have done, often people are most ashamed of things they did not do. But when we feel ashamed about things that we did not do, oftentimes we go in and do the same thing to someone else. Isn't that fascinating, though, that in that moment of confession, that a lot of the things that are being confessed are not actually sins at all. It's just how we have been perceived by people and has so broken us. This is why we need to be people who can speak blessings. We have to see people for who they actually are by giving them our attention. We have to know who they are by asking them good questions so we can then can love them and will their good. Not our good. God's good. They're good. And then we just live in a world where, as one person said, it's hard to choose good. It's, no, it's, it's it's hard to choose and do good. So we're born in an environment where it's easy to do evil. We're born into an environment where it is easy to do evil and it's hard to do good. It's very easy to hurt others. It's hard to heal their wounds. It's easy to arouse their other suspicions. It's hard to win their trust. It means that we are, each of us, conditioned by the solidarity of the human race in this accumulated wrongdoing. And we add to it. So, we live in a world where we want to be the best. Who's the greatest? It got me thinking around the goats of all time. Think of sports still. Sorry for all the sports analogies today. But do you listen to the, the greatest of all times talk about themselves and their day and age versus someone else's? The league's watered down. No one's that good anymore. But then... 
Do you have any Caitlin Clark fans in the room? Probably a couple, right? I read what the person who used to have the scoring title said. Have you read it? Her name was Kelsey Plume. And she was excited for Caitlin. They asked her why. Why would you be glad that someone stole your record? She said, for me, when I was in that position, I just wanted some love. And I think that you remember how you feel. You've got to pass it on. And I know that whoever comes next, because of her response, Caitlin will remember that. And she'll do the same thing. I'm just curious if this Kelsey Lacey loves Jesus. What a different approach in a world that wants to be the best, that wants to hold on to our records, hold on to our positions. She willing is like, good for you. Now do the same. That sounds like something Jesus would say. So I want to invite the band on up here. Um, Hmm. You know, as I was preparing today, I wrote down five stories, and I've been unsure of which one to do. We're missing two songs here, and there's a familiar theme. Last week, confession is the way home. So the first song we're going to sing while you sit for most of it is called Run to the Father. I don't know if you know it or not. It's been around for a while. But the person in the song says this, and it just struck me. Think about confession. He says, you saw my condition, but you had a plan for them to start. Your son for redemption, the price from my heart. I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand. I cannot comprehend. All I know is I need you. So I want to invite us in the first song to confess our pride. Just sit. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Where is my pride? Would you uncover it for me? Can I offer it? Because the next song is the one from last week. And it's almost like the person who's singing it has experienced forgiveness and has experienced love. And is just singing, come to the Father. Come on. Come on. It is so good. Let me show you. Can I talk to you? Come on. So I'm hoping, this is my thought. This is my thought and it might not work. As, if it doesn't work, it's, it was Alan's idea. <laughs> is we just sit and we allow ourselves to feel the weight of our desperation for God. Feel the weight of, man, I know I cannot do it. I know I get easily overwhelmed. I know I choose myself over others all the time. I know I do that, God. I don't want to do that. Would you come and help me? Can we just say, God, help me? And after we say, he says, yes, then we stand up together and we are just excited because we are not, we're not a, a, what's the clubhouse, Right? We spend our whole week outside this place. Who could we see this week at work? Who could we see at school? Who could we see in line? Who could we talk to? Who could we draw out a good word from? Who needs someone just to see them? Who needs just a hello even? You know, the whole idea of blessing people, 
it's hard to find people around. It's not that hard, but it feels hard to find them out in your world. But you know who you can bless very easily? Your household. I say this a lot to remind myself. I was in a text group a while back. And we talk about being proud of our kids. We're proud of people in our lives. And tell them that we're proud of them. And the person in my group, I don't know who he even is. So I don't say that anymore. I just tell them that I love them. Right? I love being your friend, Ryan. I love being a disciple with you, Mark. I love my wife. I love being my girl's dad. Even though I was frustrated with them the whole weekend. I tell them that. I'm, even when daddy's really not happy, I just love being your dad. I think that's how God feels. Come on. I just love being your dad. So would you? You can come forward to an elder, deacon. You can make a one-word confession. And you can receive the broken body and the blood of Jesus. If you don't want to move, sit like this. If in the next song you don't like to raise your hands, just do this. Be open. God, I'm open. Can we do that? Let's pray. So God, I do, I, I pray in these moments that we would remember perhaps when we first ran to you. And we also remember that we, we man, kids are always running to their parents. We run to you often. And that your kind of love is so outside of our ability to understand and comprehend. That is good. We want it to be that big. But the way to you, the way to to coming home to you, the way to your embrace is by turning. It's by changing through confessing. So would you just bring to our minds as we sip our pride, where we have chosen to be right instead of righteous. We have chosen ourselves over others. We've put what we like to do over someone else and in turns hurt them and hurt you. Would you bring all those things to our mind? Would we feel the weight of that burden? And then we feel you come and just take it off because only you can do that. And I just pray you send us out of here like rockets. We can be people who look for people who say, come to the Father, come to the Father, come to the Father. Come experience this kind of love.